Thank you so much, James. And um, actually, it is kind of exciting. That story was really neat because um, what I find is often the Lord hears our cries way before we even think to cry, you know? And so that, that, really, that was a really special day. And it was also interesting because uh, at the encouragement of a friend of ours who's here, Joanna, she said, why don't you go visit some of the churches in the area? And you, you never know. And so we did. And I, I literally walked in, and it was, it was just such a, an interesting God moment that everything lined up. So I'm so grateful to the Lord for that. Well, um, I'm going to be reading for a moment from, James, uh, from uh, Matthew 21. And it says this. Now, when... I can't do this. I've got the wrong set of glasses on. <laughs> Getting older, you have to have more than one set. All right, so now when, the, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, ju- uh, then, then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and the colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and uh, set him on them. And a very great uh, multitude spread their clothes uh, on the road. Others cut down branches from the palm trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who follow were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Yeshua, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So today we're going to be speaking about, um, uh, let's make sure I've got the right slide up. Yep, um, what we're going to be speaking on today is about Palm Sunday. And, uh, but before we do, let me just kind of introduce myself. My name is Michael Thomas, and my wife Teresa is here with me today. We have three children, and it looks like we've got five, but actually our older two children are married. Uh, that's Morgan and Chloe, married to Cody and Katie. And then uh, our youngest son lives with us in Dunedin. Um, people hear my accent and actually think I'm from the South Island, but actually we're Americans. So in case there's any confusion there. Yep, so... Teresa and I are part of a ministry called Celebrate Messiah New Zealand, and we are so grateful to be a part of this. It really, Celebrate Messiah is really about two main things. The first one is bringing the message of Messiah to the original messenger. That means sharing the gospel with the people of Israel. And the second is equipping the church to do likewise. And so I'm going to actually ask a friend of mine, Scott Brown, he's not here right now, but he's shared a video uh, just to quickly summarize what we do, and then we'll get on with the rest of the message. Shalom, and welcome to this introduction to the ministries of Celebrate Messiah New Zealand. Our vision at Celebrate Messiah is simple, focused, and biblical, bringing the message of Messiah to the original messengers and equipping the church to do likewise. 
The message, of course, is the good news of salvation delivered to all the nations of the earth by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And, of course, the original messengers are the Jewish people, the very ones to whom Jesus originally and exclusively proclaimed his kingdom message. So, what is Celebrate Messiah doing in New Zealand? I am so glad you asked because I'm truly excited about our threefold strategy. The first aspect is frontline evangelism, quote, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In the early chapters of Genesis, God makes an unusual promise to Abraham, saying, You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He repeated this remarkable promise to Abraham's son Isaac, and then again to Isaac's son Jacob. Has it ever occurred to you that by God's design, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exist as a dispensary of blessings to every family in every nation? That's right. God is depositing blessings from heaven to earth through the Jewish people. It's no coincidence that the blessings of the scriptures, the blessing of the Savior, and even the blessing of salvation were all delivered by God through the Jewish people. Likewise, it's no coincidence that future blessings are also linked to the nation Israel. Regardless of where and how we are serving the Lord Jesus, it makes sense to align our strategy with His. And His strategy is to redeem the nations by prioritizing Jewish evangelism. Not because the Jewish people are inherently special, but because they are God's pipeline for delivering blessings to all the families of the earth. Since its inception in 2008, Celebrate Messiah has embraced this evangelistic strategy right here in New Zealand, where hundreds of thousands of international visitors are streaming through our islands every year. For the most part, these are sensitive, intelligent young adults who are surprisingly open to discussing life's most important questions. In an effort to reach these global travelers, Celebrate Messiah hosts weekly evangelistic barbecues where we serve up free burgers and free Bibles and the gospel. Our backpacker facility in Wanaka, the Zula, is our primary means for reaching Israelis in New Zealand. Imagine a facility right in Wanaka, specifically geared toward Israeli guests, staffed by Christian volunteers from all around the world, including Hebrew-speaking Israeli believers. Our staff are alert to evangelistic opportunities among guests, and they're weaving the message of the gospel into the fabric of their daily routine. The impact is indescribable. You really have to see it to believe it. And as a result of God's favor, we are able to share the love of Messiah with thousands of young Israelis who stay at the Zula and at our other South Island accommodations. The second aspect of our threefold strategy is equipping. In Romans chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, has a divine epiphany concerning his fellow Jews. If God is using Gentile believers to provoke Jews to jealously desire and return to the God of Israel, why not enlarge his ministry to include these provocative Gentile believers? It's a brilliant strategy, and it's the very strategy we're employing here in New Zealand,
where hundreds of Christian households are networked to provide free or low-cost accommodation to Israeli travelers right in their homes. Remember, these are the very people God is using to provoke my fellow Jews to jealousy. So, by strengthening this movement, we, in the words of Paul, enlarge our ministry exponentially, reaching tens of thousands of Jewish lives through the hospitality of these Christian hosts. This is why we go throughout the country providing free training in Jewish evangelism and free Hebrew Bibles and gospel literature to these provocative hosts. Finally, the third facet of our mission strategy is training the local body of Christ. Celebrate Messiah is committed to serving local Christians who are eager to learn more about the Hebraic roots of Christianity, Israel in prophecy, and Jewish evangelism. By providing this unique training, we're able to build bridges between two worlds that, sadly, are historically conflicted, the world of Jews and the world of Gentile Christians. We do this through church meetings, seminars, conferences, Bible schools, prayer groups, special interest groups, wherever the Lord directs us. All this to say that Celebrate Messiah now has a firm foundation here in New Zealand, and as God increases our staff, we hope to become even more efficient and effective in evangelism, equipping, and training. All right. Well, thank you. Um, let's go ahead and open in prayer. One last thing to mention, if you're interested in deeper understanding about this, we constantly have um, throughout, uh, our next one is in uh, Wanaka in um, April on Anzac weekend. We're having a conference called Foundations Bible Conference. And if you're interested in understanding more and spending a weekend really understanding the Hebrew roots of the Christian faith, please let me know afterwards. Also, there's a sign-up on the back. Uh, there, there's a sign-up clipboard for more information about our ministry. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here again. We bless you and praise you, and we also honor you as the most important person in this room. This isn't about me. Most people came to this church this morning not even knowing I was going to be here. They don't know me, and it's not about me, Lord. They came, and they come every week because of you and what you've done. You've drawn us from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and praise be you because you have done this. So we thank you and praise you. We recognize that without your Holy Spirit present with us now, the rest of what I have to say is completely worthless. So, Father, we invite you to show up. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be present. Please be in our hearts, open our hearts, and allow us to hear from you. We bless you and praise you. B'Shem Yeshua, Meshikenu, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. So, um, uh, so um, let, me, uh, let me talk to you today about Palm Sunday. And it's interesting, as we get into Palm Sunday, there's actually a lot of confusion about Palm Sunday. What exactly is it? And um, as you'll find Palm Sunday in all of the Gospels, this part of the story is consistent, whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And, um, and as we get excited, we see the coming of the king. We're celebrating. We have these palms raised. All, everything in us is really recognizing the importance of celebrating what's about to happen. But I want to actually share a quick thought 
to kind of help us better understand what we're going into. This is actually the story of Romeo and Juliet, right? Because in Romeo and Juliet, you see the beginning of it and you're thinking, oh, I love a good romance. I love a great story. I'm excited. There's so much hope. Everything about the story is exciting. But if you know anything about Romeo and Juliet, it doesn't end on a good note. As a matter of fact, it's a tragedy. And the tragedy is made even worse because of the excitement and hope of what we think is going to happen. And as we look at this triumphal entry today, which it is, we have to understand that if we don't understand the story in the right perspective, we'll actually come to the conclusion that it's actually a horror story. Because the same people that are inviting Jesus into Jerusalem will be crying out, crucify him, crucify him, four days later. And so we have to understand that, yes, this is an exciting time, but there's more to the story. Because, look, let's, let's look at the things that were happening. When the multitude heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, and they cried out, Hoshiana, Baruch HaBab, Hashem Adonai, HaMelech Yisrael, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel right? Again, it's rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, written almost 900 years earlier, because this day was so clearly prophesied. So much in our Old Testament tells us what's happening, it would be hard to believe that we could ever get it wrong. And it's hard to believe that the people of Israel could ever get it wrong. But in this day, they're raising the, uh, they're raising the palms. They're excited. They're excited about welcoming the team in, uh, uh, the king in. And yet, in any of those gospel accounts, Go back, and just a couple of paragraphs earlier, you'll find this. This happens to be out of Matthew. It says, now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, he's going up to Jerusalem on this day. He took his 12 disciples aside and said on the road to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, and the chief priests, and the scri- uh, to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, to crucify. He's telling them this. He's telling them what's about to happen. Do you know what their reply is? The disciples just didn't get it. They said, James and John pulled him aside in the sons of Zebedee. They came up to him and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit at your right hand and your left, and one on your left hand in your glory. Everything in them was thinking, this is finally it. This is the Messiah coming to Israel to sit on the throne of King David. Everything in them was excited about it. So when he starts talking to them about the fact that he's about to die, it just totally doesn't sink in. 
but the fact is, it was real. The fact is, is we're actually, re we're dealing with what I would call an unexpected drama. Because in reality, the scholars didn't seem to understand their prophecies. The historians didn't understand their history. The disciples weren't listening to what was really going on. The people seemed clueless. No one understood what was happening that day. And it was being prophesied, it had been prophesied so clearly. The fact is, it was clearly foretold in the scriptures, yet it was completely unexpected what would happen. How is this possible? Paul says this, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Most people didn't get what, was, what this all was all about. Was this really a victory or was it a defeat? It's really important for us to think through that. What is about to happen? And I think the reason there's so much confusion is there's two areas that I see massively confusing about this amazing day because this is a celebration. Even in God's calendar, what is happening is a celebration, but they didn't quite understand two questions. The first one was who was the Messiah supposed to be? And the second one was what was the sequence of his coming? So who was the Messiah supposed to be? You know what? There's actually a huge amount of argument among the Jewish sages about this because they actually said there must be two, two messiahs. These two messiahs couldn't be the same person. You know why they said that? Because they realized there was one they called Mashiach ben David, the conquering king, the son of David, the Messiah son of David. The other one they called Mashiach ben Yosef, the suffering servant, the one that was sort of like the Joseph that was favored by the father and was rejected and eventually sent off to Egypt as a slave, that one, he was coming as a suffering servant. And so there was a lot of confusion. And think about this. One is a conquering king. One is a suffering servant. One is the son of David. One is like Joseph. One is going to appear in the clouds. He, his, his arrival will be appearing in the clouds. Another one would be born in Bethlehem. One would be coming to avenge against the enemies of Israel. Others, another one would be coming to save his people from sin. One was going to reign forever with no possibility of ever dying, and one would be cut off for the sins of Israel. One was going to rule as a king, and one was going to intercede as a priest. Do you see how they would be confused by this? Do you see how almost impossible to reconcile that these two could possibly be one person? And so we're going to look at a little bit more when we see the next part. But the people couldn't see how the prophecies could possibly pertain to the same person. The people were actually expecting the king, the conquering king, to come. They were not expecting the suffering servant. So... What's the sequence of his coming? And this is, I think, where they really got it wrong. But yet, all of this is foretold in God's plan, even the misunderstanding. And a lot of times, you and I might get it completely wrong, and we think, oh, we totally blew it. Yep, God knew that. And yet, he went to the cross for us, okay? So, 
The neat thing about the sequence is the Gospels. And the Gospels actually aren't told first in the New Testament. They're told from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And one of the places that they're told and the sequence of events is told through what's called the Feasts of Israel. What I'm talking about is that old dusty book, Leviticus, that nobody likes to go and visit. It's lonely. Well, we're going to visit it today. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are my appointed feasts of the Lord. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. God has created appointed feasts. Well, it's interesting because the word appointed feasts, moedim, are really dates with God, places where God said, I want you to show up every single year on certain dates. I will give you the dates, and I want you to show up because something important is going to happen on those dates. The next part is this word holy convocation. And it's kind of interesting because the word convocation or is really in Hebrew, mikra, which is also the word for rehearsals which is really interesting. So God's basically saying, I want you to show up, and when you do show up, we're going to be rehearsing something in the future. So we should know, right? Well, let's take a quick look through the feasts of Israel. First of all, there's spring feasts and autumn feasts, and we'll quickly take a look at these seven feasts. The first one is Pesach, Passover. It is actually when the lamb of God would be, the the lamb would be slaughtered, right? And the people of Israel would be saved. It also happens to be the exact day that Yeshua died upon the cross. The next one is Chag Matzah, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it happens to be when Yeshua is buried. The third feast is called the Feast of First Fruits, or Bikarim. Bikarim is not tied to a date. It's the first day of the week, after the first regular Sabbath, after Passover. Hmm, sounds like about three days to me. And that's what it was. Yeshua's resurrection actually happened directly on the first Feast of First Fruits. And you think, well, that's maybe coincidental. I don't think so, but okay. Again, God is setting up these feasts to say, these are appointments, these are rehearsals, you better show up. And what's the next feast? It's called the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. You may have never heard of this feast, but actually you have, it's called Pentecost in Greek. And it was the arrival of the Holy Spirit. All of these things were prophesied and shown in the book of Leviticus 23. And as a matter of fact, what's fascinating for me is I thought Pentecost was something that showed up for the first time in Acts 2. No, God had all of this planned. He had set this up for us long before the events actually occurred. So all of these happen to have been fulfilled by what we call that suffering suffering servant, when Yeshua came and died upon the cross. But there's also hope for future festivals, three, and they seem to pertain to Jesus' second coming. These are... um, Yom, uh, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and finally Chag uh, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, what are these all about? Well, if we trust the New Testament writers, they seem to give us hints. Basically, what they say is this is when Yeshua will return on the Feast of Trumpets, that there will be a judgment of all nations, the judgment of the sheep and the goats that will happen on the Day of Judgment, Yom Kippur. And finally, 
Mashiach's return, Messiah's return. All of these are prophesied again, all the way back in Leviticus. And the reason I bring this up, there is a point to my bringing all this extra information up, and that is, although we can see that this, all of these events are happening right before Passover, it seems by the reaction of the people that they think they're at the Feast of Tabernacles. I'll explain why in a second. First of all, number one, they're praising God and his arrival as the Messiah. Number two, they're doing it with what? Palms, right? The Feast of Tabernacles is one where you're shaking palms in joy and praise to the Lord. Listen to this. It says, when the multitudes heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hoshiana, Baruch Hamelech Yisrael. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Where did we read that and where did we hear that recently? Oh, it just happened to be what James was sharing this morning from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is actually a required reading for Passover, which is really fascinating. So I think what's going on here is though the people thought they were actually in the Feast of Tabernacles because the king was coming. They were actually preparing for Passover. So let's take a look a little bit more about the Passover passages because it's really fascinating how it nails Palm Sunday. This month, which is the month of Nisan, shall be the beginning of months for you. On the 10th of this month, now let me back up, the 14th of this month is Passover. So this is four days earlier. On the 10th of this month, every man shall choose a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Now, it shall come, uh, now, it, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill, kill the Passover lamb at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the house and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the, lamb, kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So that's a kind of an interesting thing. Well, what does all this mean? Well, when you put it in practical flesh and you see what happens on this day, Palm Sunday, you begin to understand, at least I hope. The first thing is you must choose for yourself a lamb. Realize that Yeshua comes, he shows up, and he meets John the Baptist. And John the Baptist could say, here he is. This is the king of Israel. He could say, this is God. He would be right in saying all of those things. But what is the first public announcement of Yeshua when he shows up? Oops. How did that happen? 
Ah, okay, we'll talk about this in a second. The next thing that happens is the lamb must be without defect. We'll talk about that in a second. You must take him on the 10th of Nisan, four days earlier from Passover. You must inspect him until the 14th of Nisan. The lamb must be then slaughtered, and the blood must be put on the doorpost of the house. So let's take a look at these. As I just mentioned, uh, you, you must choose for yourself a lamb, and again, John the Baptist's proclamation, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as a matter of fact, Paul says the exact same thing. He says, for indeed Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Do you see, both John and Paul recognize that Yeshua at his first coming is that Passover lamb. The next thing is, the lamb must be without defect. Last night, we talked about this. As a matter of fact, pardon me, I'm going to repeat something because I think it bears repeating. Without defect. Now, these lambs, again, people in Israel at the time would have had to bring their Passover lamb from wherever they were. So they could have been walking for two, three days. What do you think that lamb would look like after two, three days of walking through the mountains or walking through the desert? It would be beat up. It would no longer qualify as the perfect lamb that would have to be sacrificed. But the fact is, is in the land of Israel, there was a small town. It was a Sabbath day walk from the temple, whose main industry was to raise spotless lambs for the Passover sacrifice. From the moment those lambs were born, their destiny was to die at Passover. Hmm. We're going to stop and pray, because when I see this, I know there's something going on. Heavenly Father, no matter what the technology happens, we give this time to you. Amen. Give me one second. So we're going to continue. It says, uh, without defect, and it says, in the land of Israel, there was a small town, a a Sabbath day walk from the temple, whose main industry it was to raise spotless lambs for the Passover sacrifice. From the moment those lambs were born, their destiny was to die at the Passover. That town was called Bethlehem Ephrata. We know it as Bethlehem. Yeshua, Jesus, our Passover lamb, was born in a stable in Bethlehem Ephrata. He was the Passover lamb. So he was taken without defect. Um, You must take him on the 10th of Nisan. That's exactly what we're seeing because on the day that the, uh, the lamb was to be brought into your house, Yeshua shows up and is brought into the people, brought into Jerusalem publicly so that everybody could see him. Next, they must be inspected until the 14th. It must be perfect. And what's fascinating is when you read the gospel accounts, the next four days is constant inspection to see if Yeshua is actually uh, appropriate for the sacrifice. First, he's inspected by the Pharisees. The second, he's inspected by the Sadducees. The third, he's inspected by the scribes. And as they go through all of this, 
In summary, he says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from, the, from that day on did anyone dare to ask a question of him anymore. They had inspected him and inspected him and inspected him on matters of the law, on who the Messiah ought to be, all of these questions, and he answered them. And that's why they finally get to the point of saying, we can't challenge him anymore. There's nothing left to challenge. But Pilate, Pilate wasn't even one of them. And finally, he inspected him, and he, so Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. The, he was inspected by the thief on the cross. And one of the thieves says, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And finally, he's inspected by the centurion who was watching over the whole crucifixion. So when the centurion saw that the, what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Everybody who inspected him found him perfect. He was the rightful sacrifice. Then on the 14th, the lamb was to be slaughtered. Folks, the lamb of God looked like this, carrying the cross to Calvary, the, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And finally, the blood must be put on the doorpost of the house. What they were to do is this. They were to slaughter the lamb in the threshold, which is the doorpost of the house, and then they were to take the blood with hyssop, and they were to dip it into the bowl of blood, and then they were to put it on the doorpost, the, the lentil, and then on the side posts. So what they were doing was doing what? They were drawing what? They were drawing the cross right there in their doorposts of their house. That is why it's so significant that he's the one. There's something else, though, that's even more important in the whole thing, and that's the hyssop. They were to do this with a branch of hyssop. Well, hyssop shows up throughout the Bible, and it's always a transference of guilt. You remember, of course, the Passover lamb we just talked about. There was a guilt offering. This is a perfect example. There were so many that it would be hard to go into, but they took the dove, and they took the dove. They took two doves. One would die, and one would live. They would take the one dove and basically break it, break it apart and pour its blood into this bowl of water. The other dove would then be taken with hyssop and with cypress wood wood that was actually used on the cross, and they would dip it into the blood, and they would set it free. One dies, and one goes free. It was showing the whole concept of atoning sacrifice right from there. King David, of course, he's not only guilty of adultery, he's actually guilty of murder. And finally, Nathan, the prophet, confronts him. He doesn't know what to do. He finally cries out to the Lord. And in this beautiful prayer, which is in Psalm 51, he cries out, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And finally, Yeshua on the cross. Yeshua on the cross. After this, Yeshua, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood by, so they dipped a branch of hyssop into the wine and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and died. And the, all of the guilt, all of the sin of all time, past, present, and future, found its eventual target upon the shoulders of Yeshua upon the cross. That's why this is so important. 
choose for yourself a lamb. That is why Yeshua is coming in that day to Israel, in, into Jerusalem. One day he will be king, but until that day, he needs to be our savior first. Because without a perfect savior, there is no atonement. But every one of us is the recipient of his atonement. So as we celebrate this Passover Sunday, I pray that you would understand that before we celebrate him as king, we have to honor him as savior. Without honoring him as savior, that is without being at the Passover, you will never end up at the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. So let me pray and we'll share one song. Heavenly Father, we bless you and praise you for this time together. We thank you that you, recognizing that you should have been honored as king rightfully and right away, were actually recognized first that you needed to be the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So we thank you and praise you and we honor you. We give you the glory. In the name of Jesus, B'Shem Yeshua Meshikeno, amen. Come abide, come abide.